America's got money problems, inflation, out-of-control debt and spending, and it's only getting worse. But there's hope. Solving America's money problems, one hour at a time. It's time for Good Money with Tho Bishop. Good morning. This is Good Money with the aforementioned Tho Bishop. I'm coming to you live from Mises University up here in Auburn, Alabama. Mises University is the best week of the year every year. We've got uh, over 100 students up here learning from some of the best economic minds in the world and having a lot of fun doing it. And really, this kind of goes to the core of the mission of the Mises Institute, which is education, uh, economic literacy, and de-bamboozling young, impressionable minds on some of the the fallacies, the the absurdity that has taken over so many of the academic institutions in this country, both from an economic perspective, from a political perspective, from a historical perspective, and even to a certain extent, the the philosophical perspective. Uh, We did a lecture last night by uh, Dr. David Gordon, who is a a senior fellow at the Institute who is going through uh, breaking down logical fallacies and some of the great intellectuals of the Western tradition. And the, the great thing about Mises U is you look around, you know, most college classrooms, right? You got the people in the back row that kind of doodling or, or daydreaming or, or perhaps are on their phone these days. I know that that dreaded, dreaded thing. Um, and yet here you have. Again, you know, row after row of student um, really paying attention, really taking pages of notes, uh, learning from our faculty. And it is, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. And really, I, I think this is, you know, so much of, of the discourse obviously is captured by politics, the politicalization of money, the politicalization of the economy is the main focus of what we do here. But the question then is, how do you respond to the clown world of this political moment? How do you respond to, um, in some cases, a, a anti-intellectualism, right? A, a obsession over, uh, you know, what's the, the latest TikTok trend, uh, you know, who everyone's hot take, on the Barbie movie or Oppenheimer, you know, either way there. Um, and the, the reality is that there is no avoiding the consequences of ideas in society. There is no, no way of running from the ideology, from the consequences that come from the prevalence of bad ideology, particularly when that bad ideology is mixed within the toxic soil of Washington, D.C., of other forms of government power, and, and increasingly, I think, even um, you know, kind of doctrinaire libertarians that uh, have, have a appreciation for private entities and big business and the like, understanding the ideology baked into corporate culture. And I'm going to talk a little bit more of that in in one of the later segments here. The only way to fight back is by 
a platform of education. It requires awakening new generations to old truths. It requires developing a vanguard, not necessarily of, of academics, though there is a role for that. And you can, you know, having conversations with these young students and you see how seriously, I mean, some, you know, as young as 17, 18 years old, nerding out over, you know, a 600-page economic treatise. Um, they are not the norm. Uh, they, they, though, though they're, they're not, uh, you know, they, they have a good time. They're not necessarily the, the, the embodiment of, of the economic nerd by any chance. We had a great pool party on Tuesday out here in the, the beautiful uh, part of, of Auburn, Alabama. Uh, even some... Uh, a great uh, a dance party of sorts. I'm not going to necessarily say that the moves were, were the best out there. Uh, but many of these individuals aspire for an academic life, uh, an intellectual life, and that's great. But it's it's more than than just that. The, the wonderful thing about Mises U is that we have students from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of interests. You know, people that are going to go on to be doctors, people that are going to go on to be entrepreneurs, people that are going to go up, you know, even, God forbid, lawyers. Um, the ideas of proper economics, of understanding, of being able to think logically about this core concept of trade-offs, that you can't get everything you want, that there's a time component to investment, to production, that structuring all these different aspects of society, that this, this alignment of incentives between the, the cultivation and, and production of, of natural base elements, base resources, turning these into, you know, the coffee I'm enjoying right now, the smartphone that I use for show prep, the microphone that I am speaking to you with. These are not automatic. These do not exist out of political will. These do not exist a priori. These should not be taken for granted. And unfortunately, one of the prevailing trends, I think, within the intellectual sphere, both on the left and, in some cases, many aspects of the right, is the specter of, of economic denialism. It's a disinterest in understanding how prosperity grows, taking for granted the wealth and abundance that we enjoy. And it's easy, of course, and, and we talk about it a lot in the show, to, to highlight a lot of the, the bad things of the consequence of runaway spending, of a crazy decade-plus of Federal Reserve policy, the consequences of decades-plus of fiat currency, of credit expansion, of, of all the tools that have come with central banking, the, the consequences of regulation, of domestic bureaucracy, of globalized bureaucracy, of politics writ large. And it's important to understand the way that these things make us poor, but it's just as important 
to understand what goes right. To understand the reason why we enjoy far more material comforts, even the most vulnerable among us. Even if we are not particularly happy with our current state of economic affairs, even if we are ticked off at the way inflation is hurting us in, in the short term, if we are concerned about you know, the, the, the cost of our house or rent, home insurance particularly these days in Florida. And these concerns are, are, are valid and righteous, and we need answers to those problems. But it's also important to recognize that everything else that comes around us, that the access to this material bounty that we can easily take for granted. This is not the inevitable consequence of year after year, society just gets better. One of the, the major boogeymen, the great, uh, one, one of the, the fallacious ideas that uh, Murray Rothbard, one of the scholars that uh, helped create Mises University, that helped found the Mises Institute, one of his big, uh, big battles was on the concept of the Whig theory of history, that things just constantly get better. This is not true. We've seen this throughout history. Sometimes things do get worse. And so understanding what goes right, understanding how that can go wrong, that is a core mission here at the Mises Institute and is a topic of conversation here at Mises University. On the other side of the break, we're going to look at some of the economic headlines, and I'm going to continue to, to make connections to our Mises U lineup. Stay tuned on the other side of the break. This is Good Money with the Bishop on Money Talk 1010. Welcome back to Good Money. I am your host, Though Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org, is where you can find more content that you get on this show. And we have a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. You can get delivered to your doorstep every other month the beautiful, insightful Austrian economics or Austrian magazine, a magazine dedicated to Austrian economics and the work of the Mises Institute. Uh, we've got a lot of great scholars, uh, both in the U.S. and abroad, um, that are able to provide kind of long-form commentary on some of the, the major global trends, on some of the major battles going on, features some great book reviews uh, by our own David Gordon. This magazine can be free for many Talk 1010 listeners. Just visit mises.org slash magazine. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash magazine. You can register there and get it delivered directly to your doorstep every other month if you enjoy this show, if you enjoy the content of Money Talk 1010. I think you will very much enjoy the Austrian magazine. So as I mentioned on the start of the show, I'm here in the offices of the Mises Institute located in Auburn, Alabama, right in the shadow of Sugar Jordan Stadium. The most valuable piece of property in this fine city, a city that expands its population every uh, Saturday during game day, uh, which is quickly approaching. As a football fan, I'm very much looking for that day. 
not necessarily an Auburn fan, but I try to keep that close to the vest when I am up here. Wear some camouflage orange and blue rather than my preferred Georgia Bulldog red and black. Um, you know, these are some of the, the common sense private security aspects that uh, might uh, might spark a conversation or two with our students up here. And one of the things I like about Mises U is the way that these core economic fundamentals stack themselves in a way to, to really create a nice foundation. So you start with the basics and then you understand the economic ideas as they play out and as we experience them there currently. And I was thinking about this earlier in this week where... Um, you know, our, our first, uh, our, our first day of lectures, our first couple of days, really, um, along with some kind of broad overviews of the history of the specific tradition that the Mises Institute works in, the, the Austrian school, uh, founded by Karl Menger, who was a professor at the University of Vienna, who was continued by Eugen Baum Bavark, his great student, who taught uh, Ludwig von Mises of Mises Institute name, uh, and then helped spawn a, a generations of great followers, including the Nobel Prize winner F.A. Hayek, the previously mentioned Murray Rothbard, um, who themselves have inspired, again, a whole, whole generation, a whole network of scholars, both in the U.S. and abroad. So beyond some of those kind of historical aspects and understanding sort of the core logic base foundation, this this what we call praxeology, the study of human action, the study of human trade-offs, the the, the use of counterfactuals of ceteriparismus, the kind of these core methodological ways to kind of understand economics at the most basic level, you know, deciding to, to listen to the show rather than another, right? These are all ways that we economize our time. But starting from this, these these very basic individualistic aspects of economic methodology, we build upwards. Uh, we have a great, one of my favorite lectures every year is one on the, the division of labor in the social order by Sean Rittenauer. He's a professor with Grove City College. He has a wonderful mustache. Uh, highly recommend checking out his work. And one of the things I love about it is that his focus on the division of labor has this very beautiful illustration of how enterprise and how this various specializations that each individual has when producing in the market, it, it connects all of us. It allows the economic success of one person result in an improvement in the quality of life of everyone else, whether that comes in the form of creating better and or cheaper Goods and services, that's, that's one thing. The, the ability to specialize and refine specific niche items is another. Rather, much unlike politics, that uh, drives us apart and kind of turns questions into sort of, you know, who conquers whom, whether it's by the sword or the ballot box. Economics particularly commerce, brings us 
together. It makes the interests of a firm that might have entities throughout the world uh, form their ways and things that benefit us even here in Florida. Uh, so once our students understand that, they go and understand the role of money, which money plays that very important role of creating this calculation, right? You, you, you now have a measure by which what we, can, we can actually compare to help better inform those decision-making processes. It kind of puts a, puts a quantifiable number on these goods and services. Interest provides a way of, cre- of, of using those quantifying measures and placing them within a time element, understanding I'm willing to forego uh, consumption today in order to give someone money expecting a return in the future. Uh, the, the role of banks as an institution kind of resolving all this, the role of entrepreneurship that can take those loanable funds and, and think about imagined possibilities that do not currently exist. And this all creates this very harmonious structure. Again, as we started off the show, it's an appreciation for what does go right, for what can go right, for what has been the force that has propelled material well-being. The question then is, what goes wrong? Uh, If you have been recently rejected for a loan, if you find a new mortgage is not only getting more expensive as interest rates continue to go up, another quarter point uh, raise yesterday from Jerome Powell, um, but not only is, is borrowing getting more expensive, it's getting more harder to do. And if you've had that experience, you're certainly not alone. Reading from Forbes magazine, an article this week, over 20% of U.S. loans rejected in the last year, hitting a five-year high. And then within the article, it outlines rates for different types of loans being rejected. Uh, auto loans, uh, rejection rates, uh, was uh, up at 14.2%, uh, up from 9.1% in February. This is an uh, all-time high for the Fed since it began checking the data in 2013. Uh, we're now over 21% for credit card rejection rates. It's even higher for credit card limit increases. That's at, uh, coming in at over 30%. Uh, the rejection rate for, for mortgages has gone up over 13%. Uh, even worse, the, the Fed has found that uh, 46% of those who have recently applied for a mortgage expect it to be denied. This is reflecting a, a lack of confidence out there. And uh, that is a similar number to future uh, auto loan applications. And so what we're seeing now is... is it's sort of a a crisis, maybe not, not a crisis per se. In, in some ways, it's, it can be a, a correction of some sort, but growing unease within the credit markets that are a very important component of a well-functioning society. And given the extent to which Americans... Again, this, this goes farther back than COVID itself, but has been escalated during 
COVID is the extent to which Americans have become reliant upon credit. And for a while there, it seemed like a, a, not, a, not a bad idea, right? If you were, if you were listening to um, someone like, like Dave Ramsey, who does a lot of great work. His, he's, he's a, a very uh, has a wonderful moral view on the economy and on the dangers of getting over your skis with your credit card, with your, your debt that you hold as a family. But the problem is, is that, that the moral thing, the, the, the prudent thing to do can be sub- incentivized to be kind of, kind of make the people doing the right thing being suckers. This is kind of the, the dynamic that the near zero percent interest rates that again, we had as a country and really as a global globe as a home, if you look at the way that other central banks po- uh, mirrored that policy. Um, not only does that result in a dynamic where that easy access to uh, credit, you know, there's this easy money environment leads to what we'd call malinvestment in the economy, you know, leading certain projects to look more profitable than they would be with normal interest rates. That, you know, if you think back to the housing bubble of 2008, right, you, you have a lot more homes being built than there's actual demand that leads to a lot of speculation, speculation in these markets that leads to, um, you know, again, people getting over water in terms of their how much they are purchasing, you know, either with buying more house than they really need, buying more houses than they really need. Um, people respond to incentives and they make expectations. They they stay uh, the way that they they think about money, uh, finance changes fundamentally, and these habits are hard to break. Right, once we come expecting certain outcomes. I had a conversation with a student here the other day. We were talking about the concept of sticky wages. And uh, sticky wages are the idea that um, if you have a, a recession environment, something that we would see as a correction from our point of view, you know, the, 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 the economic problem is the boom phase. It's not the bust phase. And that boom phase, again, you have all this malinvestment that I was describing, right? The only way that you can break that malinvestment is with a correction. That correction can be painful. It's the hangover after you've gone out binge drinking the night before, or in this case for 10 years. Um, That correction can be painful. And how do you deal with that from the labor side of things? People are expecting... You know, they, they kind of a built-in assumption that, well, at the end of the year, you know, I'm going to get uh, a bonus. I'm going to get a certain type of raise if my wage is not going up next year. There's, there's a psychological dynamic there. And, of course, from an economic point of view, right, labor as a good on the market, like anything else, you know, it should reflect supply and demand and all that sort of stuff. And so, so some, there are sometimes, particularly in a deflationary environment, um, where wage growth should not be assumed. Right, and we're, we're, we're in fact the nominal value of that wage actually perhaps should go down, not as a result of the worker doing anything wrong. And in fact, in a, in, a, in a truly deflationary environment, a decrease of the nominal value of that wage can likely be offset, if not outpaced by, 
a decline of all other goods and services, right? If you think about uh, like the cost of a, of a TV or some of the electronic products that we enjoy, um, you know, the, the amount of, of hours that you must work in order to afford a very nice, big, flat-screen TV is much far, far, far lower than it was a decade ago. Now, you can't eat TVs, and I understand that, but, you know, the, 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 there, there is a component there where a fully functioning, a properly functioning economy results in a decrease of prices across the board, and that may well be inflected within labor markets as well. But again, the problem is that people don't like that. People, it feels understandably so. This is not irrational. They, 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 they have, they, 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 they have a sense of, of psychic, uh, a pride within that nominal labor. Nominal price put on on their labor, and so this this does this is what makes these questions so difficult to do. We are dealing with with individual human actors there, and given the extent to which all these incentives have been so manipulated, this is one of the biggest problems that that we have right now. Is that all these all these assumptions, right? Again, I can put it on that credit card because I've always been able to put it on that credit card. Oh, I can go buy that expensive new car because I've bought three of them in the last decade and never had a problem selling at a decent price afterwards. And this has been, been great here and there. A lot of the norms that have been established and internalized and socialized, and these are not the outcomes. These are not the results of a properly flourishing economic environment. They are the product of what we call interventions of, uh, of credit expansion, of government fiat. And this breakdown between social expectations and economic realities, history shows that this is one of the one of the great challenges to a standing order. Now, if you don't like the standing order, then, then you know, it's be viewed from a certain sort of political entrepreneurial lens of, of some outcomes there. But for most of us who are not ideological crusaders, but rather just trying to live our day-to-day lives with our family, trying to figure out how, in my case, my, my two-month-old daughter is going to be in the best situation for her own life in the future. Uh, try to navigate these wins and make the preparations that make us better off and have that sense of stability going forward. That is made a lot more difficult than given these issues that have become so normalized within the thought processes of policymakers. This, again, is the, the battle ahead. And this is what our students are learning here at Mises University. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. We will be back on the other side of the break. here live from Auburn, Alabama. I'm your host, Stowe Bishop, and this is Money Talk 1010. 
Welcome back to Good Money. I'm your host, Stowe Bishop, here on Money Talk 1010. This is a product of the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org. This is where you can find more, for more content like you can get on this show. And we have another special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. We've got uh, two great books, perfect for beginners, perfect for um, someone who just wants to better understand what's going on around us. One of them is How to Think About the Economy, a primer by Dr. Per Bylan of Oklahoma State University, who is actually one of our faculty members here at Mises University in Auburn this week. It gave a great lecture yesterday on the uh, unseen and unrealized costs of regulation. It's a great, great introduction to economic thinking. The other one is What Has Government Done to Our Money? by Murray Rothbard, who unfortunately is not here this this week, uh, who has passed us in the, uh, passed away several a few decades ago, but whose work in legacy continues to live on, and his work on this, this short read on the history of money as an institution, on the history of the Fed in the United States. Um, it's a great, great read, one that I revisit fairly regularly. Both of these books can come directly to your doorstep for just $5 at Mises.org slash good. And then at the store page, use promo code goodmoney, one word. That is Mises.org slash good. Promo code goodmoney, two books, $5 flat. Shipping and handling is included with that promo code. So I've been sharing some of my experiences this week at Mises University, the best week of the year. We have over 100 students from all around the world, actually. I had a great conversation last night with a student from Oxford over there in the UK. We were discussing uh, uh, some of the, the lectures with, uh, from the, the previous day with a, a student from Hungary and a student from Brazil, a student from Mexico, and that's one of the things I, I love about this is the the different perspectives that each one of them have. Um, not always agreement. It's always fun to see some of those debates, whether it's on uh, some some political disagreement here and there, some sort of uh, uh, there are some various some 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 inner debates within all sorts of of exciting academic con. Uh, uh, it, academic uh, uh, issues within a the, the, the Austrian tradition and um, you know, staying up till the wee hours of the morning discussing this, uh, you know, the, the, the role of uh, salons in society for economic development or for, for, for intellectual development. Um, it's, it's very fun seeing this play out in real time with uh, students, again, as, as young as 17, 18 years old. Um, you know, them being able to mingle with postgraduate students and the like. It's, uh, it's, it's always a, a fun time. Uh, one of the lectures that we had yesterday that caught a lot of people's attention is of a topic that uh, has certainly dominated a lot of the discourse in Florida, um, but has obviously been one of the larger national issues as well, which is kind of the question of wokeness. In the economy, not simply as a byproduct of you know, various federal level decisions, but within corporations themselves, 
you know, how did wokeness come to take over um, various large private institutions, everything ranging, you know, from Hollywood studios to banks to uh, a beer company or two, right? You know, we, we, it's kind of a recognition that the, the culture has shifted. Um, and the professor that gave that lecture is uh, the great Dr. Peter Klein of Baylor University, who made headlines earlier this year with a journal article um, that is coming out looking at this question of wokeness and big tech. And, and Peter Klein's specialty these days is an uh, organizational management. He teaches is the, the program that he has at Baylor University is, is under the kind of the, the, the label of entrepreneurship. Um, he's got a lot of great books. Uh, his most recent one is Why Managers Matter, um, which kind of breaks down the importance of, of corporate hierarchy, um, where that's become a kind of a broader conversation about kind of the bossless company and all sorts of interesting ramifications of, you know, work from home stuff and, and the way that we, we delegate power within private firms and the like. Uh, but his uh, lecture on wokeness in big tech focused on that the real driving force from this dynamic, while there is you know, certainly a, a political lens in, in a variety of ways in the margins, particularly the way that um, certain ideas are promoted within academic institutions and, and things like that, um, certain incentives um, in terms of different, you know, maybe different grant programs, things like that. Um, his lecture focused on the role of, of middle managers, this sort of class of, you know, diversity consultants and you know, chief diversity officers and the like. And he kind of outlined it as, as you know, the main advantage that these individuals get within these large firms is power within the firm. It's a level of job security. Um, it's, it's a way of, you know, it's kind of the, kind of the you know, if, if, if you've dealt with sort of kind of the extremes of wokeness, right, there's often this form of, of language policing, of, of using terms kind of as, as weapons within it, and that this, these incentives are aligned within a certain element of middle management to ensure that they have, again, job security, that their, their influence on employment decisions rises. It's their way of sort of keeping discipline within the ranks so that their vision, their interests are better represented than that of other elements of the business structure. Um, I think it's a very, very fascinating um, lecture. And again, it kind of goes to that other element within the economy. We, we can talk about institutions. We can talk about the political side, you know, the power and market dynamic, but the market as well matters. The organizational structures, the incentives within the economic institutions matter. And, um, and this is, these are some of the sort of conversations um, that are definitely worth exploring with, with rigor. And that's, that's the nice thing about the environment and the content that the Mises Institute focuses on is that it's, it's, it's this logical framework, this, 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 this genuine curiosity in understanding social phenomenon. Um, it provides a lens that is, is broadly applicable 
Another example of this uh, was a, a lecture by a Florida Southern college professor, uh, Patrick Newman, so a, a, a proud Tampa resident, um, who looked at, uh, gave a background on the cartelization of the medical profession. Um, obviously, again, another big headline of the last several years, and also particularly in Florida, the the, the way that um, intermediary medical institutions, um, you think about the, the American Medical Association, things like that, um, how they were able to use different elements of you know, getting certain types of legislation passed, which effectively served to shrink and control um, medical schools to restrict who could enter the medical profession. They helped sort of systematize what's the, the respected branches of medical treatment and the like. And uh, one of the things I love about Patrick Newman's work, he is the, the author of Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America, which kind of looks at the, the early days of uh, American history um, with this, this power elite sort of narrative, right? So understanding how, you know, what, what were the financial interests behind, you know, say, the first bank of the United States and some of the, the kind of the early workings of the Constitution and, you know, one thing I love about Patrick is that he's not afraid to name names. Right? It's, it's a very riveting sort of view of this this croniest history of the United States, um, which is certainly not unique to the United States. Right? It's, it's not not a, not a, a reflection uh, of, uh, of of an anti exceptionalism. In fact, I, there's a great amount of work in there on on the the uniqueness of the American tradition of you know some of the great thinkers within the the Jeffersonian tradition of the Jacksonian tradition of of you know what is it that has kind of created that special sauce that makes America and that, that has made America the, the the most powerful, most prosperous nation in the world. Again, all of it comes down to the ideas of the founding, this constant battle of the ideological dynamics, um, the importance of these these intellectual traditions and the like. Um, but kind of seeing how like pieces on the board, uh, the role that special interest groups being able to co-opt legislators, being able to co-opt, um, you know, make compelling arguments to various powerful individuals, whether they be presidents, whether they be agency heads. What all this does, again, it's, it, it, it creates this, this political lens, this, these, these additional political calculations that become baked in to this division of labor. And what that does is it, it, it creates these disharmonies, right? If, if going back to the previous segment, if we, if we appreciate what goes right, if we appreciate uh, how human institutions and incentives can be aligned within the beauties of a market, within a system of property rights, within individual human actors, seeking ends within this larger concept of entrepreneurship. If we understand all the, all the way the things go right, seeing where these interventions come in and give rise to corporate wokeness, give rise to industry cartels. Um, that's an important element of history. It's an important element that you can 
extract wisdom from history and apply it to the modern day. Now, if you find some of these issues that I'm discussing right now interesting, you can actually listen and watch along with our students at Mises University. Uh, We've got a full slate of lectures starting at the end of this hour. Um, We've got some great topics, such as uh, uh, central banking and inflation, big data and AI, much, much more. You can find, you can watch along live at Mises.org slash live. Mises.org slash live. You are listening to Good Money. Join you back on the other side of the break, and we'll close out the show here on this Thursday morning on Money Talk 1010. Welcome back to Good Money on the final segment of today's show. I'm your host, though, Bishop, and we have been discussing our week up here for Mises University, the best week of the year. If you're interested in watching along today, you can do so at Mises.org slash live. That's M-I-S-E-S.org slash live. And I'm going to close this show looking at an article on the Mises Wire, which is kind of the front page of the Mises Institute. My my Radio Rothbard co-host, Ryan Macon, our weekly podcast. It's on striking Hollywood actors and writers might have to get used to stagnant wages. And I, I think this um, this topic of the, the Hollywood strikes going on, both the writers and the actors' guilds and all that sort of stuff. It's a, it's a great sort of illustration of a lot of these concepts that we've been talking about today. Because here you have an industry that is in the process of, of a tremendous amount of turmoil. Um, one, you have technological changes that are disrupting the way that content is usually produced from a variety of angles. One, of course, is the role of streaming services, of uh, yeah, Hulu and Netflix, and I think they now call it Max on on HBO, uh, with kind of a combination of a variety of those corporate entities now bundled together within that, um, all these sort of platforms. They're one of the big, big battlegrounds within these debates between the unions and the studios is over how you deal with the revenue from these streaming products. There's an additional element of, of the use of future AI in terms of actors. Um, yeah, there was, and there's a lot of brouhaha about the ability of kind of taking a digital print of an actor, of a background actor, and being able to kind of create background characters using that likeness and only getting paid once and all that sort of stuff. Um, but there's the other dynamic, though, of course, is that within the content creation field, right, in terms of the substitute goods of Hollywood products, so you have the rise of TikTok and YouTube and all of these entrepreneurial stars that are, in many ways, generating a lot more views than some of these this traditional content. So you have here is a very specific industry that is having to deal with some of this, this creative destruction, to use a word from Joseph Schumpeter, uh, going on here. And particularly when you add the additional component of unionization, um, you know, the, the collective bargaining of various different types of labor within these fields. This is creating, again, this, this, this big clash going on right now. You have certain types in, in Hollywood that have an expectation for what it should mean to be an actor from a, a prospect of financial compensation, again, like the question of sticky wages and the like. And yet the bottom lines of these studios are being changed and shaped by these differing viewing patterns. It's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, one of the, the biggest entertainment 
industries, the, the one of the areas that continues to eat up more and more of the battleground is sports. Because sports are the, the one category outside of the rise of video game streaming, right? There's not a whole lot of, of live common uh, live content out there that is 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 much must watch the minute of. Um, these are, are very real changes reflecting technological advances, reflecting a change in consumer preferences and the like. And so this is something that um, you're looking at some of the headlines from the strike and it's, it's you know, friend, friend Drescher as the head of the, the union clashing with Bob Igor of uh, Disney. Um, I don't know who I'd rather be, be fighting Fran Drescher or Ron DeSantis. I'll, I'll, he's fighting a multi-front war right there. Um, you know, I, I have a feeling, kind of a, a gut intuition, uh, that this Hollywood strike is uh, it's going to last a while. Because again, these, these underlying tensions, this, these, this, the difference in desires and expectations versus the cold, hard economic reality um, is one that is, is difficult to internalize. And I have a feeling that of all of the aspects of society that could be best prepared to internalize this conflict, there's probably fewer areas less prepared to do so than the Hollywood crowd. It's actually interesting. Uh, I was looking yesterday at one of the, the books by Louis von Mises, The Anti-Capitalistic Mentality, um, which was uh, written several decades ago. But uh, one of the, the processes of the book is what leads certain groups to become anti-capitalistic in nature. And it has a chapter dedicated to, to actors and the like. And it's fascinating because there is really no more capitalistic product than Hollywood, than movies and film, right? These are these are, are products that, with the exception of state propaganda, are, are, are produced purely for the satisfaction of sort of uh, consumer frivolity. Um, not to dismiss the importance of great artistic works, of course, but you know, for the most part, these these are just pure, pure consumer goods. Um, and within those consumer goods, there's also its industries that have built around it. So these are. Again, every area of our lives, there are individuals, there are institutions. There's a tremendous amount of work that has been put into it. And ultimately, within a market, it is the consumer and our behaviors that is king. Unless kings and queens decide to overrule us. So this has been good money. On Money Talk 1010. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Again, please feel free to watch along today at Mises.org slash live. And you see some of the great lectures that we have today at Mises U. I'll join you next Thursday morning. I'll see you then. Mm-hmm.